0: So, a true news story from just just a few years ago, a fisherman off the coast of the Philippines finds this pearl, this 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 pearl. though he doesn't know that's what it is. It's this massive, ugly, blobbish sort of thing uh, just 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 wrinkled and folded in on on itself. He has no idea really what it is. He can tell it's unusual. He decides to take it back home and puts it under his bed, and there it sits, this blob sitting under this fisherman's bed for about 10 years, and the time finally came for him to move, and this is oftentimes the case for many of us when we move. You want to get rid of the stuff, right, that that you, you haven't been messing with or worn or used or whatever for some length of time. So he decides, well, i got this thing. I don't know what to do with it. So he pulls it out of the bed, and he takes it to the Bureau of Tourism in the area, and he gives it to them. And someone in the Bureau of Tourism begins to wonder, what is this? I think I know what it is, and takes it to have it assessed and evaluated. And lo and behold, this blob that this fisherman finds off the coast of the Philippines and kept hidden under his bed for 10 years... Turns out to be the world's largest pearl and is assessed at roughly a value of $100 million. Now, I don't know what happened to the guy, the fisherman, and the pearl from that point on. You may be wondering. You're going to have to look that up yourself. I didn't chase that down. It is a true story, however. It's easy to miss the value of something. Right? It's easy to miss the value of something when it's not what you're expecting, when it's not what you're anticipating, when you, when you, when you, you just don't think that's what it is and, 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 and such. You don't really see how it could have much use, much value. It's easy. It's easy to miss the value of the worth of something when it's not what you're expecting. Well, I want to say something to you here at the start of this, this uh, time, this message, that may surprise you. When it comes to um, organizations and institutions, this world's greatest hope has been hidden under the bed. Now that greatest hope, by the way, in terms of institutions and organizations, is not a political entity, it's not a charitable foundation. In terms of institutions and organizations, the greatest hope this world has is the church. And not only does the world not know that, if the truth be told, oftentimes the church doesn't seem to know it either. But God is quite clear on this point, very clear on this point. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Psalms. 122, Psalm 122, we're continuing on in this series in the Songs of Ascent, the Songs of Ascent, this collection of these 15 psalms, starting in Psalm 120, going over to Psalm 134. We're just getting rolling in this, uh, so we're only in Psalm 122. All of these are short, this is no exception, just nine verses. Hear now God's Word, Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Well, can we pray together? Lord Jesus, thank you for these songs. We know you sung them indeed you really are the author of them ultimately. And you sung them with your disciples. It's hard for us to envision that, but oh, how we need to, as you would go with them to the festivals. And surely as a boy uh, with your parents, with Mary and Joseph, you sung these. Uh, What a wonder, what a wonder to consider that we, even as we would read these and learn to sing these ourselves, we are joining in with our Savior's voice. Uh, These are the songs of the Savior, these songs of the road, songs of the pilgrim, songs of the exile, songs of the traveler going home, home to the festival, home to temple, home to Jerusalem. We thank You for these songs of ascent. We ask that You would help us to learn. Huh, what it means to sing them, what it, what, how, the, the shaping implications that these ought to have upon our own hearts, our own lives. In particular, this one. This one, Psalm 122. We, we ask that You would meet us here and teach us and train us and mold us and send us. We pray these things in Your name. Amen. Well, it is official. You know that, of course, unless you've been living in a cave this past week. It is official. Joe Biden is now the nominee uh, for the Democratic Party to run for president of the United States. Surely within just a short amount of uh, stretch of days, Donald Trump will be the nominee for the Republican Party as well. Each one of these men is going to be at the head of the ticket, uh, leading their party in, in their run for what is oftentimes referred to as the highest office in the land. Each one of these parties is going to be taking us through a campaign. Um, You might say we're going to be treated, depending. Maybe you might even say tortured over the next several months, uh, in as far as multiple interviews and uh, debates. And uh, articles and, and, and uh, videos and commentaries, I mean, it's all going to go, play out over the course between now and early November. You know that. You know that. If you've been around any time at all and paid attention to how these things work in the ebb and flow of the news every four years, this is the way these campaigns go. This is how they work. Each party is going to do all that they can. Each, each of these two men that I just named, each of these two men are going to be doing all that they can over the coming months to convey their vision for this nation and to convey why they think we should get behind that vision. Now, just as a quick aside, it's quite possible that neither man is right in terms of their vision for the country, but be that as it may, we still have to need a vote when it comes to that time, that privilege, that right there in early December. Well, Psalm 122 is about a vision. Not a vision of political candidates for the direction of a nation, but the vision of the living God for His church, His plans, His purposes for His people. It's His vision for us, His His church. Uh, As as I said earlier, this is one of the songs of ascent. This is the third in the series of these 15 starting in 120, moving on to to 134. These songs of ascent, these songs, this collection of these 15 psalms that that the Lord gave to His people in in, in that time and and period of, of, of redemptive history as they would make their way from north, south, east, and west up to the temple for the annual festivals, giving them something, not only to express something of their hearts, but to shape their hearts at the same time as they're making their way uh, up to, the, uh, to Jerusalem. I say, up to Jerusalem, the songs of ascent. Jerusalem is in the hill country. You have to ascend. You have to ascend. Top, top, topographically, I think is the way that we pronounce that. Um, just looking at the map and the elevations, you have to ascend, literally, to get to Jerusalem. These songs of ascent. Well, what do we learn in this one? Very simply, what do, we, what do we learn in this one? That the Lord has a great vision for us. His church. The Lord has a a great vision for His church, and by implication, we need to adjust ours to His. He has a great vision for His church. We have to adjust ours to His. Now, How do we see this great vision of the Lord for His people, for His church coming out here in Psalm 122? Well, in three ways. If you've got the outline there in front of you, you can see where this is going. Firstly, you can see it in the the way that the destination is described. That's, That's the first thing. Secondly, you can see it in this admiration that is shown. And then thirdly, this supplication that is given. So the destination, the admiration... And the supplication, okay? These three things, these show us how great the Lord's vision is indeed for us, His people today. So first, let's look at the destination. Where, where has the psalmist arrived? Where is he? Where is he? Well, he tells us here, uh, verses 1 and 2, I'm to read those again. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So, he's, he's there, he's arrived, Uh, There's this joyful arrival there within the city precincts, there within the walls. He's come, passed through the gates. He's standing within the city walls, so glad. The hazards of the journey are finally over. He has made His way. They've made the ascent, made their way. This this party of pilgrims, whatever, whatever the point is on the compass they have come from, but made their way to Jerusalem. There they are within the city. There they are within Jerusalem, the city. But Jerusalem, you need to understand, is more than just a city. It is more than just a place. Uh, It was the the very center of the uh, the life of Israel, not just geographically, but just the center of the life, not just the political capital, but the spiritual capital. There the temple is. But, But even more, we have to say that for another reason, that Jerusalem is more than a place. Jerusalem is ultimately a people. It is is ultimately a, a people. Let me put it this way everything that Jerusalem was to the Old Testament Israelite, the church is to the New Testament Christian. Everything that Jerusalem was to the Old Testament Israelite, the church is to the New Testament, to the New Testament Christian. Or I can put it this way the temple, the presence of God the presence of the living God is where? Amidst His people. Amidst His people. I'm going to come back to that. That's an important point. Just, just, just put a bookmark in that. i going to come back to that here in a little while, okay? But it's important just, just to note here at the start. So, this joyful arrival. In, in fact, His arrival, we don't know how long the journey was, how many weeks it was, depending on, you know, how far away they, they began this journey. But there was this great anticipation even before he sets out. You can see that in, in his wording there in the beginning of, of, of the psalm. Uh, he was, his heart was, was lightened, filled, just, just filled with joy just to know they were setting out to go to Jerusalem, to make their way there. And the reasons for this, as I said, that, that, that again, Jerusalem is the center of the life of the nation. The temple is the center of the life of the city they would go there for these annual festivals, and these festivals had a served something, as you might say, as, as the framework of the life of the people. Those annual festivals, those the, the three that, they, that were prescribed there in the Old Testament, they pull, had a way of pulling together the loose strands in the fabric of life, the, the loose pieces of, of the puzzle, of of. Well, what is it? Who, who are we? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Questions of origin and meaning and identity and purpose, all of that is reestablished there in these festivals, there as they would come back time and time again. Great anticipation, great anticipation. Again, the idea being that that the Lord's great vision for His people has captured just something and understanding something of the destination and in, in where they're going. Homecomings. No few of us can identify with this, to at least to some degree. You know, homecomings, whether it's uh, a family homecoming. You know, some of us have had some of those. You travel from you know, different parts of the country and you go. great Aunt Tilly tells you how much you look like great uncle so-and-so and all that kind of thing. And, and, and you see the pictures and all that. And that's, that's wonderful. It's great can be, or, or a homecoming in terms of a school, right, you know, the class of whatever, and you, you come back. And what, when those things, best case scenario, in, in a healthy way, take place, what is the, the effect, at least for a little while, what is the effect of, of such, a, such a homecoming? Well, it, it has a way of reorienting you. It has a way of, of calling you back to basics, not just, not just in the, the terms of memories and the past and nostalgia, but, but it has a, has a way of reminding you of what's essential, and maybe in terms of how you've drifted. Well, there's a sense in which that was true of the festivals and the impact that these had, the importance that these had upon the people as they would come back to Jerusalem. Now, just as surely as that was true then, it's also true now as the Lord's people come every week assembling on the Lord's day. There ought to be, there's an oughtness to this, there's, there ought to be something of that even in our lives now. As, we are, as our faith is reminded, as our, as our hope is recast, as our love is rekindled, there's the potential at least there for there to be a sense of joyful arrival and great anticipation every Lord's day as we assemble here and as you're watching there and it's of course why there's such tension and why this sense of angst and pain the fact we can't do it the way we would like. That said, even as we say there's an oughtness to this and there is, you ought not to play that down We have to say there's a struggle here. We have to admit that that quite often, it's not always a sense of joyful arrival and great anticipation when it comes to the Lord's day. I mean, some of you are here only because you were dragged here. Sometimes that's why I'm here, just to be honest. (laughs) I've heard it said, I think it was Steve Brown said years ago, um, I'm paid to be good, you people are good for nothing. He said that, not me. Um, anyway, so, so, but there you get the tension. You know, there's this oughtness. We know this is, we, we, we ought to be here. We ought to feel this way. But there are times we don't. You know what? That's okay. You don't need to beat yourself up for that. What you need to do is go to Jesus and talk to Him about that. You know, he's big enough to handle that. To say, Lord, I know how I ought to feel, but I don't. He actually already knows. You're not surprising him. And he's big enough to handle your struggle and your doubt and your pain and your worry. Lord, help me. Help me understand my heart's struggle. Help me understand why I do and don't feel the way I ought. Help me. His great vision for us as people is such we really ought to be adjusting ours to his. And we can go to him for that. That's the first thing. It was learning, just thinking and processing these matters of the destination. But then that takes us to the this idea of admiration. So there he is. There he is. We know where he stands, literally, the psalmist. What does he see? What does he see as he, as he looks around? Well, that's where we get into the sense of admiration. Verses 3 to 5, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David." So he is is just struck by you know the, 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 completed this long journey, all the hazards of that are behind him. There they are in the city, and, and you, I don't know no few of us can identify with what it's like you know, after a towering, rigorous, exhausting journey of some kind, and you finally have that sense of arrival and and it's it, it, it's relief that you're there and gladness that you're there and all the anticipation, all the hopes and being realized and all and all of that. And so there he is. Marveling in what he is taking in. In the buildings, the buildings, and the city blocks, and the bustling of the people here and there, and they're coming. This group is coming in from down that street and through that gate. And they're all there, they're all there, these, these, these 12 tribes, these various tribes, all with their unique distinctives. You know, Israel was made up of, I don't know if you know this, Was 12 different tribes, and each one was rather different. In fact, even linguistically, there were, there were different cadences, sort of like, you know, East Tennessee, West Tennessee, you know, but, in, you know, larger, expanding out the nation. You can kind of tell where people come from, just based on their inflection and their accents. We, even that was the case even then even then, and, and different customs and practices. Yes, yes, that was true. And at the same time, how are they described? But as the tribes of the Lord. So you have all this variety, this beautiful variety, the diversity, and yet at the same time, they're called tribes, so plural, but tribes of the Lord. They are as bound together in, in purpose as the city is, as the temple is, these tribes bound together, bound together in unity and and oneness. Really a reflection of the tri-unity of the God who has gathered them there in the first place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Diversity and unity for all eternity. what What the psalmist is seeing is a reflection of God Himself, there within the precincts of the city, there as the people are coming to to, to worship and they're united for this festival. The diversity of the people, the unity of the purpose, really something to consider. A common submission, I can put it that way, it's alluded to there in verses 3 to 5, as they all together have one king under one rule, the house of David, yielding to His judgments, His rules, His laws, His ways, His leadership, united in this common submission and common worship at the same time. Unlike the peoples, unlike their neighbors, the Israelites worshiped one God, in one place, not rightly, we read of other times in their history where it was other places, other gods, right. But rightly, they would worship one God in one place. Their ties were so far beyond just blood ties, it was so far beyond that. They were united by a, a common covenant that the Lord Himself had initiated with them. That's why they existed as a people. Was that one common... So again, they are tribes, yes, but of the Lord. Tribes of the Lord. And again, this is capturing something of God's great vision for us, His people. And we see it reflected here in the admiration, the admiration that the psalmist has... For, for the Lord and His people and the city and all of that. Do we have such a, a sense of ourselves, a sense of the church, God's church, His purposes, of, of, can we say, admiration and, and a, even adoration of the Lord all the more so? I Try and illustrate it this way. Here's a truism. To love someone is to treasure what they treasure. Now, I'm assuming healthy attachments here, okay? Just, just, That's a caveat. With that assumption in mind, to love someone is to treasure what they treasure. Fair? You with me? Okay, so our son, just here in the last few days, let us know that he is adopting this pound puppy that he's been fostering for some number of weeks, Okay, so what does that mean in terms of me, his father, next time I'm in Chattanooga, that's where he lives. I'm going to do all I can to befriend this dog. Why? Because I like dogs? Well, yes. But more, far more so because this dog is my son's dog. To, to love someone is to treasure what they treasure. How is this psalm guiding us in terms of treasuring? In terms of what it means to love and treasure who and what God loves and treasures, but His church. His people. The Psalm is, is, is guiding us in that direction in terms of what our highest admiration should be in terms of institutions and organizations and such on this earth. The Psalm is guiding us towards rejoicing in the diversity that we see worldwide amidst God's people, at the same time marveling in its unity rejoicing in its diversity, and marveling in its unity. Not bland, boring uniformity. That's not what we're talking about here at all. But rather what I've heard described as a doxological diversity that is a living testimony to the power of the gospel at work. The only thing that could bring such diverse people together globally, worldwide, across cultures and race and languages and tongues and everything is the power of the gospel. It's a testimony to the power of the truth of the gospel. At the same time, it's also a preview of coming attractions, a preview of even now of what we read in the book of Revelation as peoples from all tribes and nations are going to be assembled there before the throne of the living God, of the living Christ, finally made new, completely made new, and finally made one fully and finally. The gospel and its impact even in this day is a testimony to its power and a preview of what is coming. The Lord's great vision here, again, it is being captured, is being um, imaged here in what we're seeing in this destination and in this admiration that is giving, oh that we would then adjust our vision to the Lord's as we think in terms of how He sees His church and His plans and purposes for it. It is no small thing, no small thing, my friends. this takes us to the last point. So, the psalmist, we know where he stands, literally. We know what he is seeing. How does he respond? What does this stir within him, recognizing the significance of where he is and what's going on and what all this means? How does he respond then? Well, that takes us to the supplication, verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers' and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. He finds himself impelled to give himself towards the peace of Jerusalem. Recognizing the significance of where he stands and recognizing how the Lord sees this city and sees the temple and sees its purposes, he cannot help then but want to give himself towards her good and to pray for this peace. Now, that begs a question, what does that mean? What are we talking about when we speak of the peace of Jerusalem? No doubt, no few of us have seen the billboards. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You've seen the bumper stickers. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I don't know what they mean, but I don't think they mean what the text means. What the text is after here, and this is why we needed to say this earlier, truly on this side of the cross, at this stage of redemptive history, what are we talking about when we speak of the peace of Jerusalem again what is Jerusalem Jerusalem as the place as the city Israel as a nation has fulfilled its purpose in God's redemptive plan so we have to say as we just think, that's the lens we have to approach text like this with we have to then say that again as we said earlier just as surely as we can say uh, that, that everything that Old Testament Jerusalem was to the Old Testament believer, the church is to the New Testament believer. Okay? So it has to do with a people, and the temple has to do with God's presence, and his presence is amidst us now. There's a sense of fulfillment here when it comes to Jerusalem, when it comes to the temple, when it comes to the nation of, of Israel. So praying for the peace of Jerusalem is praying for the Shalom, the wholeness, the fulfillment of, of mission, the deep, deepest sense of wellness and spiritual health and strength of God's people worldwide. It's not about a city on a map. It's not about a nation that has a place at the UN. This is about the church. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem now is to pray for the shalom of the church. To pray for the shalom of the church, this prayer for peace. What is that about? Well, you get a sense of that. He says there in verse 8, for my brothers and companions' sake, he speaks of, this is human flourishing. Again, we've talked about this a few times already in this series, shalom, that Hebrew word. You know a few of you have heard, heard of that. Um, again, it speaks of the way things ought to be. There's an oughtness to it in the sense of God's creative intent and flourishing and fulfillment and rightness and wholeness and all of that. And it's worth noting, I don't know if you saw this, but three times there in verses 6 through 9, you see this word within, within your, your walls, within your towers, within you. This has to do with a peace within the members and between them as well. This is something quite profound, quite searching, beautifully searching. And oh, that our hearts would long for that and pray for that. Clearly, we're being guided towards that here in this text. A prayer for peace, for the flourishing of God's people, and that God's purposes would be realized. For the sake of, verse 9, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek... You're good. Again, the, the temple had to do with God's presence, and God's presence is now amidst His church, and His church, the presence of the living God, In this world, going forth is meant to be a a signpost, a city on a hill, salt and light in this world. We have a purpose in God's design in this season, in this place, now, now. And oh, that that purpose, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, That ought to be our prayer. It is our prayer. It's the Lord's prayer. See the sense of the Lord's great vision here, and you get a a sense of that with the supplication that is is, is lifted up. You know, we, again, a a little truism trying to illustrate the point. We tend to pray for what's important to us, right? In fact, sometimes we only pray when there's something, when what's important to us is threatened, sadly. but let's just assume we're healthy. We pray for what's important to us. Some of you know this past week, my, my brother-in-law was in dire physical straits, health concerns, and he's doing better now. But my, and my wife then made the, the, um, the round-trip road trip out to Virginia to be with her sister during this crisis. You know how I was praying, and no few others, praying for the recovery of my brother in law and praying for the safety of my bride as she's making that drive out to Virginia and back. Why? Because we have a tendency to pray for the things that are important to us, right? How are we seeing what's important to the Lord here in Psalm 122? His church, His people and the realization of His plans and His purposes for His people in this world. I wonder, are we catching sight of that? No doubt, we struggle tremendously here, I think all of us, especially so because in the 21st century Western world, we really don't do very well with an understanding of the corporate nature of the body of Christ. Our chief concern typically is, just put it this way, my faith, my relationship with Jesus, and there's very little oftentimes said with the plural, our faith, our relationship with the Lord, we just have a way of distancing ourselves from a corporate identity, a corporate understanding, a corporate sense of belonging. We really struggle with that here in the West, not so much in other parts of the world. Granted, some of that can be because we want to distance ourselves from, you know, people in the church that embarrass us, that bug us, the scandals, of course, so that's natural. But it's not just that. We just struggle here because of a sense of individualism and the worship of self, And the Lord would have us to broaden our eyes, to see that there is an our and an us, and not just a mine and a me. We are part of something much larger, much, much larger. He has a great vision for His church. Oh, that ours would be adjusted to His. Let me end with this, just this last question. I've been teasing up and pushing up on it all through this message. I just. And pressing it one more time. How do we see the church? Did it surprise you? Did it almost embarrass you when I said earlier that when it comes to institutions and organizations in this world, the church is its last best hope? Are you embarrassed to say that? Are you embarrassed that I said that? How do we see the church? How do we believe? How do we recognize the Lord sees His church? We know how our neighbors see the church. Surveys and studies bear this out time and time again. Most recently, uh, there, there was one that was done that indicates that this is a generalities I know, and it depends on who you're asking, where and when and all that sort of thing. But generally speaking, our neighbors, our contemporaries, would say, yes, they're willing to hear, Things about Christianity, they're willing, they're willing, believe it or not, yes, to hear. At the same time, they would say, many, most perhaps, would say that the church is a place of hypocrites. Many would say that they can see how Jesus can make a positive difference in your life. At the same time, because of our contemporary understanding of what religious uh, tolerance is, entails, they would then also say equally strongly that, yes, Jesus can make a difference in your life, but at the same time, anything else can make a positive difference in your life too. And there's no real ultimacy to whatever He's doing in in your life, which really when you press on that and you really think about that, it ultimately means it doesn't matter what you believe. And if you want to press on that a little further regarding this morning's discussion, it it ultimately means that really the church is just one more voice in a crowd, according to our neighbors. We just need to reckon with that and love them accordingly, recognize where they are and love them accordingly. We also know what the angels and demons think of the church, roughly speaking. Um, roughly speaking. You heard me, those of you here last week, heard me um, allude to and read from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. So I'm going to add another one for you. In case you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, this is uh, C.S. Lewis' uh, classic little book, a uh, collection of 30-odd letters, all fictional, the idea being you're getting, you're, you're um, reading somebody else's mail is the idea of, of this senior tempter to a junior tempter as screw tape the senior tempter is trying to help Wormwood the junior tempter understand how to uh, just, just undercut the faith of this patient as he refers to him. Well, here's a quote from, actually it's just the second letter. You don't have to get very far into it to, get, to come upon this. I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her. Spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. Spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That may come from the lips of screw tape, but it's very orthodox, very biblical. It's quite a vision of the church. Is it ours? Is it ours? Psalm 122, as it takes us and helps us to understand something of The destination and the anticipation and the supplication is taking us by the hand. The psalmist is taking us by the hand up the hill, up the ascent to Jerusalem, into the streets to see something more of the Lord's great purpose, His vision for His people. We need to adjust ours to His. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for providing these songs. Ah, for providing these songs to Your people then as they walked those roads, those paths, as they were preparing to go, as they were venturing on their way, as they arrived, these songs to express and shape their hearts. Thank You for providing these songs for them and for us. Oh, would you use these images to capture our minds and our hearts? Would you help us to see how the promises here have been fulfilled, as rich as their privileges were, how much more so ours? Your vision for your church is so great. We could just park in just a verse at a time here in this psalm alone And really be carried away with the greatness of your vision, your purposes, and your plans for us. For us, oh goodness. And then to consider that you would include us in that, that you would number us, call us your own. It was a wonder indeed. Oh, we pray, we plead with you that you would help us to see us as you do. Help us to see what you have in mind for us, not just individually but corporately together as a body, to go forth with boldness, with humility, with assurance, with hope, with kindness and compassion and conviction, softened and steeled at the same time, hearts ablaze with wonder and praise. Make us Psalm 122 people, we pray. In your name, amen.